0: Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. The studio life of Anne Truitt, 1921 to 2004, is explored in the focus exhibition in the Tower, Anne Truitt. The first major presentation of Truitt's work at the National Gallery of Art, the exhibition celebrates the museum's acquisition of several major artworks by Truitt in recent years including seminal works from the collection of the Corcoran Gallery of Art, as well as several outstanding loans. Bringing together nine sculptures, two paintings, and 12 works on paper, representing the different media in which the artist worked, the exhibition traces Truitt's artistic development from 1961 to 2002. One of the most original and important sculptors to emerge in the United States during the 1960s, Truitt is unique in the field of minimalist art. She hand-painted her sculptures in multiple layers to create abstract compositions of subtle color in three dimensions. Her art is infused with memory and feeling, unlike much minimalist art. And while most of her peers were based in New York or Los Angeles, she worked alone and independently in Washington, D.C. For a public symposium held on January 19, 2018, Miguel de Baca further explores ideas first introduced in his book Memory Work, and Truett and Sculpture by considering Truett's oeuvre in the context of the cultural practice of historic preservation and the idea of the 20th century monument.
1: What is a landmark now? Landmark is one of the oldest words in the English language, originally used to convey a boundary line, a mark that exists between properties or estates. Over the centuries, it came to take on the additional meaning of an object that, by its very conspicuousness, could give direction during a journey. Neighborhoods, jurisdictions, communities, towns, these became known for their landmarks. In a sense, the community took on the character of the landmark, was identified by it, and identified with it. The landmark, too, is a place of reckoning with history. In Milton's Paradise Lost, the landmark is the place where Michael the Archangel took Adam to peer into the future to see the horrifying consequences of his sin played out in the lives of his sons, Cain and Abel, to see Cain's jealousy and rage well up against his brother, to witness Cain murder him, his brother, his own flesh, in cold blood. Adam, open thine eyes, the angel announced, and behold the effects which thy original crime hath wrought." What is a landmark now? In modern usage, we might think of a landmark as something historically significant, tied to the past. Perhaps it marks a turning point. Perhaps it defines an entire era. Perhaps it addresses a past with which we no longer wish to identify. Over the past year, Americans have been given much to think about concerning history and the anger, the real rage that it produces. Oftentimes, these confrontations ignite in the presence of monuments and memorials, places that visualize our history. Oftentimes, these visuals conjure terrific pain. We are in a moment in which we, as a people, are being asked to see our landmarks again, to evaluate which histories we should honor, to review the past and its bearing on our present. Given these urgencies, I wish to structure my remarks today on the question of what we can learn about reckoning with history from the artist Anne Truitt. Truett was one for whom memory and history were absolutely foundational to her practice. And furthermore, she was especially concerned with how the past was infused into places and spaces, how we, as ordinary beholders, come to experience the past when our visual and bodily perception becomes focused, how we potentially see ourselves differently or think differently when we notice a certain color or shape. Truett's allure is that she coaxes these visuals into our consciousness. They can be as unpredictable and volatile, as ordinary and subtle as memory itself. Truett pioneered the minimalist style, for which she is best known, during a period that was, quite interestingly, itself undergoing a major reorientation in its attitude towards landmarks from the past, And while much of the United States had history on the mind, Washington DC, where Truett lived and worked, was especially caught up in the new enthusiasm for historical preservation. I am certain that you are all familiar with officially designated historic sites. Oftentimes, you will see a plaque which has some variety of the language you see here. This site possesses exceptional value in commemorating and illustrating the history of the United States. The 1960s is when the US government became organized in its approach to classifying historically significant properties. In brief, the National Park Service had been established by Woodrow Wilson in 1916 as a bureau of the Department of the Interior, and given the task of protecting environments, monuments, and land reservations of special importance to the United States. But until the 1930s, most of the Parks Service's targeted sites were put under protection only here and there by an occasional act of Congress. For instance, the very first National Historic Site, and here is some exciting trivia for your next dinner party, is the Salem Maritime National Historic Site in Massachusetts with its brick customs house and signature tall ship. In 1960, at last, the National Park Service consolidated its interests and acted upon data gathered from across the United States to help establish the National Historic Landmark Program registering 92 sites during its rollout over the fall and winter of 1960 and 1961. The landmark program concentrated efforts on the densely populated eastern seaboard, hoping to benefit from greater numbers of visitors and tourists, as well as to stimulate a sense of national unity and common culture during a period characterized by great social change. 19 landmarks were designated within the District of Columbia, not only including the obvious choice of the US Capitol Building and the White House, but also less frequented sites such as the Octagon House, which is a plantation owner's mansion that was lent to um, President Madison after Washington was burned in 1814, and St. John's Episcopal Church, the so-called Church of the Presidents, located in Lafayette Square. Despite these efforts at the national level, many at the local level were beginning to feel anxious about rapid changes to familiar landscapes. Because of widespread economic prosperity after World War II, property developers would commonly identify older structures to demolish in order to make way for larger, more modern ones. As the author of an article in the Washington Post wrote in 1961, In the last two decades, as the present ran roughshod over the past, much of America's fine architectural heritage was obliterated. Today, more and more of this heritage is being threatened by a mounting wave of construction, urban renewal, highway networks, metropolitan expansion, and revitalization of old areas. By using the language of destruction and threat, It is clear that the author reflected a point of view that constituted modernization as a violence against the past, perhaps even as a process to be feared. And the fear of forgetting was not merely architectural. In this human interest piece from 1960, it was also clearly personal. In it, a journalist characterized a seemingly ubiquitous DC peanut vendor as a peripatetic landmark which is an oxymoron, really, since landmarks don't usually move around. But the overall point was to celebrate the memory of a charming way of life quickly being lost in Washington. To revive the memory of the peanut cellar was in its own way acknowledging the fear of a changing place that might also in time change the character of its community. Naturally, the physical difference between the Capitol building and a push cart selling peanuts might seem all too plain. And yet, each was hailed a landmark in 1960. As we can see, the turn of the 50s into the 60s presented especially heightened conditions of historical change that rapidly accelerated public commemoration. And as such, the process of historical preservation became increasingly embroiled with what we might call public feeling. Inasmuch as our experiences with landmarks allow us to re-examine our understanding of history, national identity, and social stability, they also ask about ourselves privately, where we fit in the larger narrative. And perhaps like Adam in Paradise Lost, a landmark may even allow us to envision the world's future for better or for worse. But now we turn to the question of how Anne Truitt's artwork can help help us better understand how to see history, how indeed we can not only see history, but also to reckon with the personal memories that influence our sense of self and place in the present. Truett was an artist for whom these questions were pertinent. And in my book, I go into great detail about her attachment to the French author Marcel Proust, whose theories about the vividness of memory were impressed upon her in the 1950s when she produced a translation of secondary literature on Proust by the French scholar Germain Bray. As a result of this, Truett gravitated toward the Proustian idea that an object in one's focus could unleash a powerful return to the past through memory, which in turn brings a fresh attention to one's present experiences. My intention today is not to repeat too much of what's in my book, but one thing that is worth mentioning here is that Truett's interest in Proust is activated at this very moment in the early 1960s, in which she began making a completely different kind of artwork, the astringent, crisp forms for which she is best known nowadays. Truett was an artist based in Georgetown, a neighborhood in Washington where the clash that I have been discussing between older infrastructure and modernized one was of special note. For example, starting in 1961, Truett's sculptures were cut at the Gallagher Brothers Lumberyard, located at the base of 31st Street at the Potomac River, adjacent to the defunct B&O Railroad Freight Station and beneath Washington's new Western arterial freeway called the Whitehurst Freeway, which was built in 1949. Many of you, if you're Washingtonians, can envision these sites because you have seen them and you know precisely where they're located. What's more, in the 1950s, the Truets lived on uh, Georgetown's P Street, the old streetcar thoroughfare connecting historic Georgetown with downtown Washington. And when they returned in 1960 after a stint in San Francisco, they settled on 30th, just one block above P. Truett's daily travels to her studio in Twining Court on the DuPont Circle side of P Street between 21st and 22nd carried her along and across the rail slots that were now obsolete. Many Washingtonians praised the city government for doing away with the inefficient trolley lines to make room for more cars. But I think we must also see this change to the landscape as precisely the kind of modernization to which the incipient landmark movement, with all of its anxieties about history, was forming its response. At the time, while Truett no doubt observed the juxtaposition of antique and modern infrastructures in Washington firsthand, Her artistic imagination was instead gripped by the unique historical architecture and landscapes of her childhood in Easton, Maryland, on the eastern shore of the Chesapeake. This is perceived nowhere more powerfully than in this sculpture, First, so titled because it was her first foray into geometric sculpture made of wood, which would soon become her signature style. Fences, were foundational features of 17th century British America, and the eastern shore of Maryland boasts some surviving examples of this historical architecture. Back then, fences were used in two primary ways. Post and lintel fences, of the type described in the bottom right image, were used to mark the boundary of the property in order to separate one family farm from another picket fences here on the upper right, on the other hand, were exclusive to the home. They are exclusively domestic and are still very popular even today because they nostalgically refer to this earlier time. It is compelling that Truett's first invokes such a historical passage because her sculpture is built to the specifications that the first settlers used, about four feet tall at the highest picket. Over 100 years later, the famous US architect, Benjamin Henry Latrobe, observed the widespread domestic use of the white picket fence throughout the early 19th century, a point at which it became identified with the special American look. Another 100 years later, 19th and early 20th century urban and suburban dwellers encircled their domiciles with picket fences as a nostalgic referent. Here you can see several examples of the enduring popularity of the white picket fence. The top slide is a 1920 photograph of a colonial home with the characteristic picket fence outside. And the bottom slide is of a home in colonial revival style, so a new home uh, with a picket fence surrounding it from approximately 1960. That being said, it would be a mistake to assume that Truett possessed a romanticized notion of the past. In fact, she did not go along the grain of a nostalgic view. Certainly, she would have understood that the picket fence was an emblem of colonial Maryland and a source of pride for people from Easton, and she would have understood it as a more general symbolic structure invoking the bygone ideal of a charming and orderly domestic life. But the power of this sculpture and what it teaches us about such supposedly iconic historical visuals is that convenient narratives are not universally shared, that nostalgia for what and a good life to whom are important questions to consider. To illustrate this argument, think about Truett's fence for a moment as the kind of structure that does not have any functional bearing on the structure that it seeks to imitate. As a fence with two reciprocal sides, it provides no sense of stable separation as a normal fence might. Real fences are intended to allow some in and force others out. They demarcate space into two, a binary situation. You're either in or out. You're in the home or you're in the world outside. One's relationship to the fence depends on whether one will be included or excluded after approaching it. Thus, I believe that Truett's preoccupation here was not as much the fence itself, but what it does to force us into seeing the space around it, being able, so to speak, to occupy the inside and the outside at will. And in turn, by forcing the beholder to negotiate the separate sides of the sculpture ensures that he or she will meditate further upon the exclusionary function of the original In this, Truett really captures the notion that time itself changes our perception of history. We can never really go back. Things will never be as they once were. Think about going to the town in which you grew up. Surely you do not feel like a child again in that instance, but rather as an adult now looking back on the past to either enjoy it, to question it, maybe to put it behind you. Similarly, Truett was already 40 years old when she made a serious foray into the art world. She had necessarily projected herself outside of the fences and boundaries of her childhood, and most certainly outside of the accustomed roles expected of her. Think about the fact that there were not many women who made it as professional artists in the first half of the 20th century, and no doubt she endured episodes of sexism and exclusion right from the start. In effect, she was not looking back on the past to regain it, but rather to understand what it could mean for her now in the present. In the 1960s, not all artists were as eager to give the past such free admission to the here and now. In fact, in that era, the word monument, and here we can think of a monument as one particular kind of landmark, was repeatedly used in opposite relation to minimalist sculpture because it was associated with a long and rather romantic entanglement with history, a history that many artists wished to obliterate in their pursuit of something radically new. The art historians here will know a famous story told by the artist Tony Smith about a nighttime drive he took in the company of his students on the then-unfinished New Jersey Turnpike. Quoted by the art critic Michael Fried in the famous essay, Art and Objecthood, the drive purportedly liberated Smith's views about traditional forms of art and sharpened his sense that the contemporary direction in sculpture should ideally perform an introduction to new experiences rather than accumulate historical references Smith presented the freeway site as a situation which was, in his words, without cultural precedent. In 1967, the artist Robert Smithson created a photographic essay entitled Monuments of Passaic, in which he documents various supposed landmarks in the suburban town of Passaic, New Jersey. Always teetering on the edge between earnestness and irony, Smithson plots out rather unremarkable industrial sites and parking lots as monuments, places that fundamentally reveal the mundane character of American suburbia. Smith is rather extreme to insist that the landscape surrounding the new freeway was totally empty. Despite the obvious Manhattan skyline radiating to the east, certain low-flung marshy stretches might have seemed obscure, especially at night. But the perceived emptiness of the turnpike really owed to the fact that when it was brand new, it cut through land formerly occupied by several older cities, some of them quite densely populated. And hundreds of homes and properties had to be destroyed in order to make way for the modern thoroughfare. And in Smith's photo essay, the suburban wasteland set the stage for future succession, more buildings, more shopping malls and parking lots, which would then in the course of history fall to ruin and set the stage for other buildings once again. As you can see, a preoccupation with how to understand time was a major theme of 1960s art. However, In Truett's case, the beholder is allowed to experience the sense of new and old at once, of history and loss often held in uncomfortable tension. These are sculptures whose shapes signify architectural authority, austere plinths, edificial corners, and monumental supports. And yet, at the same time, the main visual event oftentimes is to notice the juxtaposition of colors, some of which are stark and others difficult to distinguish depending on levels of light and shadow in the viewer's environment. Take, for instance, the boldly titled Insurrection, summoning two blood reds vying for space along a nine-foot board shored up by triangular struts or by contrast, the diminutive Mary's Light of 1962, as much boldly present, rendered in pale white and bright yellow. Despite the economy of their presentation, these are works that reprove instantaneity and convenient judgment. The depth and richness of these colors provide the opportunity for the beholder to deliberate, to find a moment of connection, within the complex chain of associations arising from the discovery of such a sensation. It is important to note that they originated in an era in which the subjective experience of time was a matter of great urgency. The past has always been hard to see. In 1983, Truett made a sculpture entitled Axilla, a column that is 84 inches tall, 8 inches wide, and 8 inches deep. The title is a Latin word meaning a joint where different directions meet. For example, in physiology, as just one example, this is where the arm meets the shoulder. The torso is the main support, but the arm stretches out another way. Think about this idea as I read you a passage from Truett's Day Book, her first artist journal published in 1982. Here, Truett recounts the sight of two trees at Yado, an artist colony where she worked for the summer. A tall pine and a beech tree have grown so close to one another that the beech's limbs have been diverted by the pine's trunk. They jut out from the joints, swollen, to uphold them at the angle necessary to allow the pine to grow straight. The two trees do not touch except at one point where the thrust of the beech's growth has been turned at an angle, but this touch in no way bends the pine's trunk, which springs in one rigid line from the earth and disappears into the beech's foliage. Is this what closeness inevitably involves? Between the pine and the beech there is a tension that has beauty. The adaptation of the beach has the grace of submission to circumstances and their conquest also, and its leaves glitter in the windy sunshine and lend their delicate variety to the pine's harsh needles. What is it that closeness inevitably involves? Certainly, it's a measure of pain as much as intimacy. In the joint between two competing directions, an antagonism arises, and it has consequences, Later in the story, Truett compares these trees to a majestic oak recalled from a summer spent on the eastern shore of Maryland, how perfect and tall and straight it all seemed in her mind. But her present circumstances acknowledge the complexity of how she grew together and apart from others and the inevitably increasing remoteness of the past itself. Very rarely is anything straightforward. I mention Exilla to urge you to see Summer Remembered of 1981, a sculpture in this present exhibition. Summer Remembered is 84 inches tall, 8 inches wide, and 8 inches deep in its exact measurement, the companion to Exilla. Painted in offset shades of yellow, it may suggest the delights of summer. But would Truett have us engage with memory so innocently? Elsewhere in daybook, Truett recounts for the reader one summer in which her mother took her to visit her beloved nanny who was dying, one of her first experiences with extreme morbidity. Another summer, as a young girl, she was bitten by a snake and recalled the clinical detachment with which her mother treated the wound, which left a deep and lasting impression. And yet another summer, in her early adulthood, she worked with psychiatric patients, and in another summer as a nurse's aide in a hospital. Nothing is not without suffering. Like the two trees struggling for survival, the pleasures of memory and its discontents apply mutual force. This is what we can learn about history from Ann Truitt. To return to where we began, what is a landmark now? Today, the visual field is packed with monuments, memorials, historic sites, plaques, reminders and remainders of history. Historical memory itself is the object of desire. Here in Washington, these overt markers yearn for our loyalty, but it's overwhelming. Imagine if we could see every monument and memorial hold each one brightly in our eyes at the same time. What good would that do? Instead, the opposite is true. We've come to expect a degree of oblivion. We've learned to make landmarks invisible, and there they remain, both obvious and hidden, in our mind's eye. It's a strange affliction to see something and not see it at the same time. As early as the 1960s, Truett proposed an accountability to seeing the present that we take for granted today. Her art makes a difference in a contemporary world in which memory is so much everywhere that it threatens to engulf us or, at worst, to seem disingenuous. Thus, when fragments from the remembered past explode into our consciousness, as from time to time they do, it says more about the pressure points we feel right now. Our axilla, a transition, or crossroads, our insurrection, what we fight for and what we surrender, It is our summers remembered, the shoreline and the snakebite. What her artwork gives us so generously is an opportunity to consider what we see right in front of us and then to marvel at the tumultuous fragments of the past that remain just beyond, to use another phrase from Daybook, beyond the Lyman of consciousness. Thanks.
0: This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.